Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, we're going to talk to someone who dug into the history of the Jane Austen adaptation. Jane Austen perfected that quintessential will they, won't they, love, hate. Like, I don't think we would have Ross and Rachel or Sam and Diane without Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet. Plus, one woman's quest to spend more time outside while also naked. You're as vulnerable as you get. And then, you know, when people don't take advantage of that and when they instead are kind and friendly, I think it's really a valuable moment of connection. But first, let's sit back, relax, and talk about the week that was. With us this week are two nerdette faves, the host of the Fanti podcast. We have Travel Anderson. They're an entertainment journalist. Travel, hello. Hi. Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks for coming. We also have Jarrett Hill. He's a journalist, producer, and professor. Jarrett, hello. I kind of want to do hi, just to kind of mimic Travel's. <laughs> great, great. So you're making fun of each other already. I love it. Okay, so let's start with Nope. Uh, this, of course, is Jordan Peele's third film. He is known for his like horror-adjacent work, I think you could call it. He also did Get Out and Us. I saw Nope over the weekend. It's definitely one of those where I want to like read everything I possibly can about it because it is wild and full of like way more symbolism than I can possibly pick up on. Uh, have you all seen it? Travel? did you did you see this one? I did see it. I saw it on opening weekend. Um, and I, I should say, I'm not one of those people who does the horror movies. It took me like two months to to get up the courage to see Get Out, right? Back in the day, as we call mm-hmm. it. Um, and so <laughs> I went into this with a little, you know, just like anxiety on 10. Like what what yeah. spooky, ooky yeah. things is he going to incorporate? Um, and, there's, <laughs> and there's definitely some of that there, you know, very... Various sure. jump scares and whatnot, but it really yeah. is this like I found it to be this like deeply interesting rumination on like the history of black folks in cinema and yes. about exploitation and about this 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 idea around spectacle. Um and so I feel like it's a movie that like if you're just looking for something you can eat some popcorn to the movie's great for that, but if you're also looking for, like, an intellectual, you know, exploration into something, you got that there as well. Yeah, this is one where I would definitely recommend seeing it with someone who's, like, good at watching movies. So that on the drive home, you can be like, what is, like, mm-hmm. is the monkey thing necessary? And, like, there's just so many different things that you can really unpack with it, which is partly what makes it so fun. I can totally relate to what you're saying, Travel, about not being a horror fan, though. Like, I remember sitting in the theater... And, you know, all the trailers are for horror movies, Mm -hmm. which makes sense, right? Because they're like, this is the genre of the film you're about to see. So these are the other ones you might be interested in. Like, 
I just like increasing anxiety around all of them. Like, what am I about to watch? This is already so intense. (laughs) Like the trailer with the lady almost getting her hand in the uh, dish disposal thing. Do you remember? It was just like, oh, what's about to happen? (laughs) Jarrett, what do you think? Is this a genre you spend a lot of time with? Well, I first of all, I'm sorry that you had to re-traumatize yourself with the woman and the hand and the garbage disposal. You know what I'm now, about? I, I saw you going down a spiral, and I was like, "Come back, come back, come back." It's okay, it's okay. Thank you, I appreciate um, that, Jared. I, 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 I am not like a horror fan in the way that like I go see a bunch of horror movies, right? But I do tend to enjoy them when I'm in them, right? Like I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun to be a little startled. And so, nope, I've not ever known what this movie was about, right? Yeah, like, same. and I think that's been like part of the the thing about it is like we like, are you going to tell us what it's about? Nope. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta like give us like any kind of real information in the trailer. Nope. You know what I mean? Like you're just gonna show up and watch this movie. And so I don't think I've ever said this in a critique of a film, but like I didn't get it and I was thoroughly entertained. Like I was like, I don't even know what we're talking about here, but like Kiki Palmer is a national treasure. I, I'm totally wrapped up in this story. I'm not a hundred percent clear what I'm rooting for here, but like I'm rooting because I'm entertained. And like, and then I started thinking like, if there isn't a point, the point might be that we're always expecting some kind of point from Jordan Mm. Peele and he just wanted to do an entertaining movie. Well, yeah. And I think it does have like sort of like big blockbuster, like Spielberg vibes, I think, but it's not... Mm. It definitely isn't superficial, you know, like there are definitely things happening. I think the question is like whether or not we can figure out what the, you know, it's not like there are no things. It's just like, what Mm -hmm. are the things and what exactly Mm -hmm. is there? But I think even just for the sake of seeing black cowboys, it was really exciting, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of, that's one of the interesting parts though, right? Just for the folks who will go see it, there's this recurring, you know, few second clip that plays Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the movie and through the movie a couple different times. It's a real clip from Edward Moybridge, I believe is how you say his last name, which people credit as being, you know, one of the first moving images. It's a collection of photographs of this black guy on a horse. We know the name of the horse. Her name is Annie G, but we don't know the name in real life of the black man on that horse. Mm. And this is the beginning of what we consider to be Hollywood, right? And so the movie is a commentary on that in a lot of ways and some other things as well, you know. So, you know, it, 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 you don't have to get it to be entertained, as Jared has said. But if you do get it, I feel like there's so much other things to chew on as well. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So another story that caught our attention is this one about the teenage girl who ended up having to pay almost $2,000 because she accidentally brought half a Subway footlong sandwich on an international flight to Australia and failed to declare it. I didn't take chicken and I didn't take lettuce. Chicken and lettuce. And that is a nice little... $2,664. $2,664. To be paid in 28 days. I, <laughs> I have so many thoughts about this one. Obviously, it's absurd. Um, but again, I mean, Australia is an island. They have to be careful about, like, living things coming onto this island. 
Uh, what do y'all think? Like, is this, I don't know. I just can't imagine the frustration of spending almost $2,000 on a Subway sandwich. That's devastating. Right, Jarrett? <laughs> so I just, I'm, the word that is like just sitting in the front of my vision is discretion. And that like, it was at someone's discretion to say, yes, surely this was a mistake. And we're not going to charge you $2,000. And, like, this makes me think about how, like, discretion in lawmaking and legislation is, like, such an important yeah. factor. Yeah. Because, really, it becomes someone's discretion, whether they are attorneys general or the city clerk or whomever, right? Like, to say, like, this is okay or, like, we understand this was a mistake. You're not – we're not going to charge you $2,000 because of half a sandwich, right? Right. It makes me think about that and it makes me think about how – there's a sandwich place here that I grew up here in Los Angeles. Whenever we would come down to L.A., Johnny's Pastrami has a pastrami sandwich that my dad loves. And, like, I called him the other day and I was like, how much was that sandwich mm. back when you used to come get it? And he was like, oh, it was like $8 or something. I was like, do yeah. you know that pastrami sandwich is $22 Oh, now? my God. 22 Wow. And I'm like, I don't think it's worth $22. <laughs> it's like, I, until $2,000, I don't know. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because apparently, you know, Subway got wind of this story, of course, and they sent the girl a gift card for $2,000 to Subway. The disrespect. <laughs> they could have just the dis- they like, sent her $2,000. It does not solve the problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody asked for that. See, I want to fight everybody in this situation. I want to fight everybody <laughs> in this situation. The person whose discretion it was to charge her $2,000 fine for it. Yeah. I want to fight the subway executives who thought it was a great idea to send her a gift card to subway she probably don't even want no more subway no more you know if i had to pay two thousand dollars for half a sandwich you think i'm coming back to patronize your business come on now come on You're speaking for us all, Travel. I recently was on Cape Cod, and a lobster roll these days is $35, which is not cheap. Yeah, it is. But guess what? I also recently was in Connecticut and the Berkshires Mm -hmm. for two weeks. Lobster Mm -hmm. rolls all over the place. And you know what? I'll pay for a good lobster roll. Okay? (laughs) I'm, I'm just saying, you know, you just got the lobster out the water. Oh, yes. I, I, I could pay for that. I could pay for that. So speaking of snacks, Klondike, the manufacturer, discontinued oh the Choco Taco. Jarrett, you're already emotional. So this is, I of just, course, I... you know, the vanilla chocolate ice cream treat in a taco-shaped cone. People are very upset. Jarrett, tell us how you're feeling, buddy. I'm fine. Um, I can tell. I believe you. (laughs) I, um, uh, let me tell you, can I make a direct appeal to the people at Klondike? Oh, sure. Yeah. There are many things that I would do to get that Choco Taco back. Like, I love a Choco Taco. We did on our show, uh, just recently we did an episode on fast food. And we talked a little bit about, like, the nostalgia of some foods. Mm-hmm. And, like, Choco Tacos, like, my dad loved Choco Tacos when I was a kid mm-hmm. and got me eating them. And, like, I haven't even had one in a long time now. And so, like, yeah. the idea that they're gone or going, I'm like, 
I'm feeling away. I do think it would have been nice if they had warned us because like you, I haven't had one in years. I remember liking it as a kid. It would have been fun to at least have like one last chocolate taco. Would it? Exactly. Would it? (laughs) Yes. Would it? Y'all haven't thought about a choco taco in decades. (laughs) Okay. Y'all have not yeah, thought about this ice life. cream in a decade. And y'all that's are true. acting all, you know, verklempt <laughs> over it no longer, you know, existing. Come on now. <laughs> I I mean, you are one hundred percent right in yes. all of what you said. Right. Yes. I, I have not thought about Taco Tacos in forever, and I am verklempt about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Travel, to be defensive about this, I don't, you're right. I don't really give a fuck about a Choco Taco for sure. But I do think there is something about the world crumbling around us at this mm-hmm. current moment and having like a cute little easy box, taco shaped box that I can put my feelings into in this situation. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, Let's just really focus and fixate on this one tiny thing because I do not have the energy to mm. actually look around and mm. deal with a lot of what's happening right now. You know? Mm. Go ahead, Jared. I see you. You, know you, you ready to jump in. <laughs> Travel. I'm not going to let Travel do this to us, Greta, because <laughs> Travel is someone who loves like a pizza roll. I do. loves like, you know, that quick, when you talk okay. about it being a quick, easy, little compact thing, I thought about how many times I have FaceTime Travel the Anderson mm-hmm. off the rest times two. Mm-hmm. And they have been in the freezer pulling out a box of pizza rolls to put into the air fryer. You do not get mm-hmm. to do that to us in okay, this moment. Okay, but here's the difference. But here's the difference. Klondike said that the reason they're discontinuing it is because y'all ain't been buying it. I'm buying my pizza rolls. Okay? I'm consuming my nostalgia. Ain't ain't nobody asked you none of that. Okay? (laughs) What I said was let us mourn. We asked you to give us privacy during this difficult time. Okay? Oh my gosh, y'all. I am crying from laughing so hard. This has been so much fun. Thank you both for coming on. You're just my favorites. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Jane Austen only wrote six books before she died at the age of 41, but the number of screen adaptations and spinoffs is very high. Carrie Whitmer is a freelance entertainment writer who recently took on the excellent task of making a timeline of all the Austen adaptations for Vulture, and she is here to break it down for us. Carrie, hi. Hi. Okay, so let's start with just like Austen's work in general. Like, what do you think makes it so perfect for adaptation? I think it's because Austen's work, even though it is obviously of a very particular era it is so universal and Mm. even though the world has changed especially for women so much since it's still so resonant in ways that can apply to so many Mm. modern situations for so many women and and other people too not even just women 
Right. Well, and you talk, too, about how, like, you know, when you think about kind of some pretty typical and classic, you know, rom-com tropes, like the will they or won't they dynamic, the love-hate thing, like, she owned that stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm i sure I think that Shakespeare kind of had some of that, too. But I think that Jane Austen mm. perfected that with, like, Darcy and Elizabeth. Like, I think that's the quintessential <laughs> will they, won't they, love, hate. Like, I don't think we would have Ross and Rachel or Sam and Diane without mm. Darcy and without Pride and, and Prejudice. Yeah, and Elizabeth Bennet, for sure. That's amazing. So when it comes to Darcy specifically... There is one in my heart who is like Darcy, and it is Colin Firth. Almost from the earliest moments of our acquaintance, I have come to feel for you a passionate admiration and regard, which despite all my struggles has overcome every rational objection, and I beg you most fervently to relieve my suffering and consent to be my wife. What's your take? Mine is actually Matthew McFadden from the um, 2005 mm. adaptation. I have fought against my better judgment, my family's expectation, the inferiority of your birth, my rank and circumstance, all these things, and I'm willing to put them aside and ask you to end my agony. I don't understand. I love you. I mm. saw that before I saw the Colin Firth miniseries. Oh, funny. Yeah. Do you think it is just like the first Darcy you see is the one in the, that imprints on your heart? Like there's just no way around it? <laughs> I I would think so because that's how I, that's how it's been for me. But I think it might depend on who you ask. I mean, I think both of them were really great Darcy's because they have this kind of like edgy um, interpretation yeah. to the character. There's like an imperiousness to it still that's like really hot, which I hate to admit as a feminist <laughs> in the year of our Lord 2022. Exactly. Very hot is a very good choice of words because I think that's why I love Matthew McFadden's interpretation of the role because that movie is just like inherently horny can I say horny on public radio um yeah you're super allowed to say horny <laughs> um but I and I saw that during some very formative years I was a teenager when I saw that in theaters mm. and that was definitely mm. very important for me as a young woman <laughs> so let's get to your timeline you start with the 70s and 80s can you sort of like walk us through how approaches to austin adaptations have changed over the last 50 years absolutely so in in the 70s and 80s uh bbc in particular started doing all of these very long adaptations of jane austen's novels which i believe were meant to kind of reintroduce austen's work to audiences um hmm. and they were very very loyal adapt adaptations which is why they were also very long i believe most americans probably watched them on masterpiece theater and so i that's how i got into jane austen is watching all of these really loyal not very i wouldn't say that they're very cinematic um adaptations of jane austen's work hmm. they're just they're very british i would say in a very complimentary way they don't really apply Jane Austen's work to any modern modern themes um, throughout those mm. both of those eras. Um, but as we get to the 90s, they started getting a little bit more creative with adapting her work. Um, but I also think that this kind of goes along with how film as a medium was evolving throughout those decades as well. Um, so sure. around like the 80s and 90s is when we start to get the more traditional romantic comedy when Clueless came out, which was an adaptation of Emma in a completely modern 90s setting. Um, and that's kind of what that's is when I would say the pivot 
of Austin adaptations that became a little bit more modern um, and applied all of her, the same themes that she has throughout her work and has the same sense of humor and kind of biting satire that her novels have in a modern film set in a modern time. Josh needs someone with imagination, someone to take care of him, someone to laugh at his jokes, in case he ever makes any. Then suddenly, oh my God. I love Josh. I am majorly, totally, but crazy in love with Josh. So can we talk about Netflix's new adaptation of Persuasion? I haven't seen it. It's gotten a lot of criticism on the interwebs. Uh, What didn't work about it, do you think? So I have a love-hate relationship with this movie now, which I think is really funny considering Austin's like perfection of the love-hate relationship um I think the issue that people have in general with book adaptations and Austin adaptations in particular is is loyalty to the original material and in many Mm -hmm. cases you you just can't be super loyal to a book as in-depth as an Austin novel in a two-hour or 90-minute movie um and some some filmmakers and screenwriters do a good job at killing their darlings when it comes to ad- adapting this work. I believe yeah. that Persuasion, in an attempt to try to make it as modern and as edgy as possible, it just completely, I th- from my perspective, and I think a lot of other people's perspective, kind of missed the point of the novel. And I believe Persuasion is her darkest work. And having this like incredibly light, more playful tone, kind of, it it, it just didn't feel right. I I, I can't even find the right word. It it made me so mad, but I watched it for a second time and decided that it was like actually kind of brilliant in its own weird way. Um, and, and, And it felt like a very perfect outlet for Dakota Johnson, who had just is really, really great with the camera in the movie, even though all of this fourth wall breaking doesn't necessarily work. Like she's actually pretty good in it. Um, hmm. But I, th- I think generally it's just, it, they tried so hard to be like all of these successful Jane Austen adaptations like Clueless and even 2005's mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice, which is still set in the period, but it's very modern in its own ways, that it just mm-hmm. completely missed the point entirely. Interesting. So to that end, then, why do you think Fire Island worked so well? It definitely didn't take itself too seriously in a great way. No, I I mean, I I think Fire Island is the same, is kind of in the same vein as Clueless in that it is loyal enough to the source material and to the characters and to the themes that Austin is um, trying to, like, bring about in the story that it works no matter what the setting is. Like if, if the bones are there, then it doesn't really matter what the, what the details are. Oh my God. Amazing. One thing we kind of glossed over, which I do think is probably very important to highlight is the zombification of Jane Austen in the 2000s. Starring Lily James. Like what, what happened? You know, that is one that I have not seen. Um, I did watch the trailer. (laughs) I think what happened is that, in the 2010s, uh, superhero stuff mm. and franchises, IP took over 
the film industry and we kind of lost the rom-com that like Jane Austen it kind of started um in the 90s and so you're not seeing that much and so I honestly think it was probably like how do we get a how do we get people to see a Pride and Prejudice adaptation in the 2010s and they just put zombies in it because The Walking Dead was popular. God bless Hollywood. <laughs> Do you think these stories are ever going to feel old? I think the only time they would ever feel old is if the only adaptations that we see in the future are similar to Netflix's persuasion. Unfortunately, mm. I, 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 but if we continue to see adaptations that are more in line with Fire Island and Clueless, I think that they will live, live on. Um, but I think at this point, it's just a matter of, is the entertainment industry going to fund those kinds of projects? Uh, hopefully they mm-hmm. will. I hope that Fire Island's success overshadows Persuasion's failure. And when you say that, do you mean in terms of diversity and kind of expanding out representation yeah. in addition to the freshness of the feel of it? Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. I-, I think one of the greatest things about Fire Island is that it applied this story into a completely the different formula. culture. Yeah. And for me, I mean, I'm a straight white lady and <laughs> I enjoyed like being exposed to something that I'm not used to. Whereas if it was just like a story about like two straight people, people, straight white people going (laughs) Mm -hmm. on a beach vacation and like, you know, it wouldn't have been as interesting. I I, I think applying all of Jane Austen's stories into these different communities that we're not used to seeing on screen is what can keep her legacy going on for sure. Well, Carrie, thank you so much. This was really fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. In just a minute, Nerdette producer Anna Bauman talks to Gloria Liu about her recent article titled One Woman's Wholesome Mission to Get Naked Outside. You heard me. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. About a decade ago, Gloria Liu lived through a real-life nightmare. Some friends and I did a backpacking trip out to a hot springs outside of Aspen, and this one was clothing optional. I had like gotten this wild hair and convinced everybody that we should get into the hot spring naked. I get up to the hot springs before everybody else do. I take off my clothes and I get in. And then my friends walk up a few minutes after me, and everyone's in their bathing suits, and they get in, and nobody really brings it up. We just kind of make awkward conversation and avoid eye contact. To make matters worse, uh, a couple of older men walked up not long after we got in. They didn't get in. They just sat there in their clothes, and they watched. 
since that day, Gloria has kept her clothes on, even when the people around her have not. I remember one time I was doing a backcountry ski trip and some friends and I were staying in a hut and they got naked and skied off the roof and um, I just watched from the sidelines. And I, I think that watching from the sidelines feeling was kind of encapsulated how I felt about this experience. Like it was this experience I saw everybody else having and these people must have so much confidence. They must be so comfortable in their own skin um, to do this. I wish I felt that comfortable. As you can tell, Gloria is an avid outdoors person. So she says she really did feel like she was missing out on an important experience. There is an interesting long story tradition, I guess, of people doing naked things outside. So, for example, uh, I have friends who have mountain biked naked under the full moon. There's a thing called Naked Hiking Day that happens every June on the solstice, uh, where people amble around in the buff. So, for some reason, people who love to be in nature sometimes like to do it without their clothes on. So... Like a good athlete, Gloria set up a training plan with one goal in mind, to get naked outside and feel good about it. She wrote about her mission for Outside Magazine, and after some reflection, she says her discomfort with getting naked around others goes much farther back than that one incident in the Colorado hot spring. I think it was not something that I'd ever been exposed to or had any experience in. Like growing up, my family, um, my parents are immigrants from Taiwan. They're fairly uh, conservative in terms of, you know, exposing ourselves. And I guess like modesty was something my mom raised me with as a value. You know, since you're in these like very outdoorsy circles of people, do you think there's a double standard around being naked outside for dudes versus women? Yeah, uh, I I do think so. I mean, I think a really good example of the double standard is that it's acceptable for men to go running with their shirts off or climb. They A lot of yeah. men rock climb with their shirts off. I think that's a reflection of, of a societal double standard, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I do think that in general, we as a society are just attuned to be more conscious of it when women have less clothes on. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting because... One of the people I spoke to when I was reporting my story was a woman named Jenny Verrocchi. And it's now the, the second year that they've done this, but she puts on a big naked ski day for women in Colorado. And the first year she did it, she had 22 women show up last or this year when she did it, she had 300 women show up for this naked ski. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And, and something she said about the experience was just for women, especially like we've been taught all our lives to cover up. Um, you should be modest. And, and I know that attitudes are really different now, but nonetheless, a lot of us were raised with this. So it's especially liberating, I think, for women to take off their clothes in a natural setting, in a non-sexual setting, because you're kind of reclaiming that experience and saying like, Hey, like this is my body and I am choosing what to do with it. And right now it's, it's to take my clothes off. Um, I really liked the conversations you had with the, psychologist Keon West at Goldsmiths at the University of London, who found that people who spent time being nude together in non-sexual situations actually reported improved self-esteem and life satisfaction. And I just thought that was so fascinating. Yeah, I loved learning that. And that was interesting because I experienced that too. So I went to a clothing optional hot spring resort 
I saw all these different body types, you know, like people who were round, people who were tall, people who were thin, people who were old, people who were young. And it really made me think like, wow, there's so many different ways for our bodies to be attractive you know, like, mm-hmm. like I really thought mm-hmm. like all these bodies are all beautiful in their own way. And again, in a non-sexual way, even though they all look so different. And it was funny. I actually remember after spending the day at the hot springs, I was, I went back to the cabin we were staying at and I saw my own body in the mirror and it looked more beautiful to me. Um, it was, it was really kind of a profound experience. Yeah. I definitely feel that in my own life. Like I, I went to a Korean bath in here in Chicago recently oh, called cool. King Spots, like kind of a big deal. <laughs> And yeah, it's just like all of these people in a pool, all ages, and I haven't been naked around other people in so long, especially after like during the pandemic. And my friend turned to me and was just like, bodies are just so beautiful and they're so weird too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they are. They, yeah, they're, they're beautiful and weird and then they're beautiful in their weirdness. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an experience I think that connects you to other people too. Because mm-hmm. when you put yourself in that situation, you're literally uncovered, you're unarmored, you're as vulnerable as you get. And then, you know, when people don't take advantage of that, and when they instead are kind and friendly, I think it's really a valuable moment of connection. And I think you're right, like during the pandemic, that's something we've had the opposite of that, you know, we covered up, we yeah. covered our faces, like, mm-hmm. we were far away from each other. And we were alienated and being the opposite of that with strangers, it really made me feel kind of connected to people again and kind of restored some of my faith in humanity, which I think I'd been losing in the past year and a half, you know. You know, people being kind to you, but also people just ignoring you and your yeah. naked body is so useful. Like, <laughs> oh, I don't I don't need to think about this and like focus so much on what I assume people are thinking about my body. That is a great point, actually. That's something I wish I had written in this story, but you're right. People just ignoring your naked body and having no reaction yeah. to it is is fantastic. Yeah, it, it makes me think of the, you know, the whole body neutrality movement, which kind of takes it a step further from body positivity, which is like, hey, like all bodies are great to like, hey, actually, uh, bodies are just neutral. They're neither good or bad. Um, and actually mm. thinking about them in that way is very healthy. And it's just like, hey, my body is my body. Right. It does it does amazing things. It does gross things sometimes. <laughs> and, yeah. And <laughs> it's all just part of it, part of being human. <laughs> bodies are bodies. Yeah. It's fine. So let's go outside. Yeah, exactly. Gloria, thank you so much. I'm so inspired by this whole journey you've taken. <laughs> I'm glad. I hope, who knows, maybe you'll also find an opportunity to get closer to nature in this way, too. (laughs) All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with me and and other Nerd At listeners in our Facebook group. It's super fun. It's called Nerd At Headquarters. And you can join if you go to facebook.com slash groups slash HQ. Our newsletter is built by the delightful Maggie Civit. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. And our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. 
Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.